This morning, would you turn your Bibles to Exodus chapters 1 and 2 is where we're going to be at today. Exodus is the second book in the Old Testament in your Bibles, Genesis and then Exodus chapters 1 and 2. We're in a Christmas series entitled Birth of Hope. And we are exploring birth stories in the Bible. And we're climaxing with the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we begin to research and take a look at what the Bible says about birth narratives, we found that most, most births pointed to one thing, and they pointed to hope. Hope in the midst of despair and hope in the midst of fear. Hope in the midst of sadness and depression, and hope in the midst of worry and anxiety. Exactly what we need today in light of the tragedies of what we experienced in Southern California um, this week. Last week, pastoral intern Thomas gave us an introduction to this series, and last week we explored the birth story of Isaac, son of Abraham. And today... Let's take a look at the birth story of Moses. Today's sermon is devotional. It's, we're we're going we're gonna to read through uh, the scriptures to tell the story of Moses' birth. And we're going to, at the end, draw out two principles. And this is the story of how God prepared Moses to be a great leader and to bring hope to Israel. We find in chapter 2 of Exodus, in, in verse 10, a, a key verse in the birth narrative of Moses it reads this way, when the child grew older, she, and that's Miriam, that's Moses' sister, when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So what's the story? It's a pretty familiar story, but I, I think it's good. It's been good for me this week to, to read through this and, uh, and to see what God would have to speak to my heart. I hope he speaks to your heart today, too. In the beginning of Exodus in chapter 1, we see that the children of Israel were originally from Canaan, and they went down to Egypt during a famine, and they grew and they multiplied in, in, in Egypt, and the Israelites became numerous. They started to just populate the land, and, and they didn't go back home. They stayed in Egypt. It was a great place to be at that time for now. However, the ruler of the Egyptians, Pharaoh, and the leaders felt that Israel they were just getting too numerous, just too powerful. And so take a look at Exodus chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And so we get the picture of Israel not in their land, in Egypt, and what's happening. They were growing. Egyptians were getting worried. They, they uh, oppressed them and worked them ruthlessly. But not just slave laborers, how they were oppressing them. The king said to the midwives, those who were birth coaches, he said to them, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth and the newborn baby is a boy, 
don't let him live. Kill him. And if it's a girl, let her live. Verse 17, Exodus chapter 1. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives had a great answer to Pharaoh. They said, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. (laughs) They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. Oh, to be a Hebrew woman, huh? That vigorous. Verse 22, and then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but every girl let live. Now, in those days, infanticide was prevalent. The murder of children was common, but almost always in that time it was girl babies that they would allow to be murdered. There's really chilling in in awful archaeological evidence of babies being left in the elements and dying of exposure during this time. They had really negative attitudes towards children. There's a, a piece of, of, of a letter found of an Egyptian businessman, a husband who writes a letter to his pregnant wife, and he says, I'm in Alexandria now. I'm, I'm making good money on my business trip. And, in, and he knows that she's pregnant, and he says, so if you have the baby while I'm gone, that's fine. If it's a boy, keep it. And if it's a girl... Just leave her outside and let her die. However, in Exodus chapter 2, they're trying to kill baby boys, not, not the girls. Well, why is that? Well, here's the answer. The Hebrew woman, women could be easily assimilated in Egyptian culture and practices. And if the next generation was mostly female, they could be married off and just sold to slaves. And and they were trying to dispose of the Israelites. And with the women, the girl babies, they would just assimilate them into Egyptian culture. So this sets the stage for what we see here is what we call civil disobedience. I mean, if you really look at this, the midwives have already civilly disobeyed, right? The Hebrew mothers were following suit by hiding their baby boys. But the grand prize for creativity in her civil disobedience goes to this woman here in Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. Here we find the hopeful birth of Moses. Verse 1. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. And then then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. And she opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Verse 7, And then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Now, you've got to know, everyone knows what's going on here, right? I mean, it, 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 there's no surprise here. Verse 8, 
Yes, go get a wet nurse. And she answered. And so the nurse went out and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I'll pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. Now, what Moses' mother does is very creative, if you think about this. She puts him in a cradle, in a, in a boat, a cradle boat, and puts him in the river where the Egyptian women bathe. And then Pharaoh's daughter goes down to bathe, and this, is, is, this isn't unusual. I mean, you've got to think about Pharaoh. He's got hundreds of wives and concubines, and, and he probably has hundreds of, of daughters, and they're... One of his daughters goes down to the river to bathe where they're always bathing. And the Egyptian princess here finds baby Moses in this cradle boat and recognizes him. This is a Hebrew baby, she says. Well, she knows that her father has decreed that Hebrew boys, baby boys, must be killed. But she's taken by him. I mean... It's, it's hard not to love babies, right? I mean, it really is. I mean, we, here we have McKenna, and we have Ruby Joe, and we have Peter, and we have Claire, and we have Kai, and there's babies. It's hard to not to love these babies. And yet, we find then Miriam, baby Moses' sister, runs up and says, do you want me to get a wet nurse for you to, to help you with this child? I really do think everyone knows what's going on. Pharaoh's daughter knows what's going on. Miriam knows what's Everyone knows what's going on here. So for the first five to eight months, now get this, because this is so important. For the first five to eight years, not months, for the first five to eight years of Moses' life, he's raised by his own family. And I think about this. And I think that God knew how important it was. It would be extremely important because Moses in those five to eight years of his life got his cultural and racial identity in those first eight years. And without that, he couldn't be the leader that he would be for Israel. But then, after about five to eight years, he went to go live in Pharaoh's house, right? And there was so important too because there he got the education and the training to be a leader. The Israelites didn't have access to education and learning. So what does Moses get? He gets five to eight years of, of being raised as a Hebrew boy in this family, of racial, cultural identity, and then he goes to live in Pharaoh's house where he gets education and leadership training, all to prepare him for something great in his life. The rest of the chapter goes like this. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. Okay, so now he's in Pharaoh's house. He's watching the, the, the Israelites. They're in hard labor. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, it's one of his own people. Now, there's a unique identity that's building here with Moses. Remember, Moses was a prince of Egypt, and he was also an Israelite. 
And he knew this, and he had to make a choice of allegiance here. Am I going to be the prince of Egypt, or am I going to be with my people? Look at verse 12. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting, and he asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed that Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid, and he thought, What I did must have been known. And when Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, we know in Midian, Moses lived there for 40 years, and he became a shepherd. And Moses was both, remember, prince of Egypt and also a prince of Israel. And he knew he would have to choose which one he was going to be. And then when the moment came for him to choose which way he was going to lead, he chose the foolish way. As a prince of Egypt, he had the power and authority to just sort of abuse people, especially the Hebrews, and kill them, and you'd get a little slap on the wrist or maybe a fine or something like that, but it wasn't a big deal if you were going to be a prince of Egypt. Moses has this, what I would call, cultural dissonance. He was confused in a way. He's trying to functionally live as an Israelite, but he's thinking like an Egyptian prince. And he means well, but there's an arrogance and, and there's an anger that goes unchecked. And Pharaoh, the Egyptian leader, wants to kill him, and the Hebrews don't respect him. So Moses doesn't go back to Egypt. He runs to Midian in the desert. It's interesting because the writer of Hebrews comments on this in Hebrews chapter 11. In verse 24, it says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as a son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So where is Moses now? I mean, where, where do we see him in, in, in chapter 2? He's an unknown shepherd in the desert. He looks, it looks like his life and his career is ruined because he tries to do the right thing. In the meantime, the Egyptian king has died. The Israelites are crying out for help because of their oppression and slavery. And God hears him and he has compassion on him. And if you know what happens next to Moses in the story and, and what happens with Israel, then it's, a, it's, you know, it's, it's great. And if you don't know, just keep reading on. But we're going to end right there today. Let's take a look at a couple, a couple lessons we can learn from the birth story of Moses. The first lesson there is, is this. There is hope for those who obey God. Well, of course, there's hope for those who obey God, even though in the challenging or difficult circumstances in your life. So maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you're facing challenging and difficult circumstances, but there's hope for you when you obey God, even in those difficult times. Remember, Moses was born in some dire and some hopeless times. He was supposed to be just thrown in the river, murdered as a baby boy. And what we see in the birth story are prime examples of challenging circumstances, and we have prime examples of civil disobedience here. The midwives lied and disobeyed Pharaoh's order 
by allowing Hebrew women to have baby boys. And they lied. They said, ah, Hebrew women, they're vigorous. Before we get there, they have their babies already. That's a lie. Come on. Moses' mother disobeyed Pharaoh's order to throw baby boys into the Nile River. Instead, she makes a little cradle boat and floats him into the reeds. Civil disobedience. Take a look at this. This is a, what I would call a test for civil disobedience is this. When a human government commands what God forbids, when a human government commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, Christ's followers are duty-bound to obey God. If you ever wondered about civil disobedience, and I, I, I think this captures it. When a human government commands what God forbids and, or forbids what God commands, Christ's followers are duty-bound to obey God. Now, Christians have always been sort of an enigmatic group to political factions all around the globe. In Romans chapter 13, you could read that the Apostle Paul writes, Christians submit and respect the governing authorities because behind and above those governing authorities is the authority of God. Romans chapter 13. The governing authorities is a God invention, and God is behind and above those. And this means, unless we have to disobey the government, we must submit. But, because God's authority is behind it, if it commands what God forbids, or forbids what God commands, Christ's followers are duty-bound to obey God. There's examples in the Bible, in, in Daniel chapter 3, where King Nebuchadnezzar commands Daniel to worship an idol, and they don't do it, so they get thrown into the furnace. Civil disobedience. Daniel chapter 6, King Neb forbids anyone to worship the Hebrew God, but they do it anyways. Prime examples of civil disobedience. So, there's hope for those who obey God, even in the most dire and challenging and difficult circumstances in your life. Second lesson that we can learn from this is there is hope even for those who don't obey God. This is interesting when you really think about it. There's hope for those even those who don't obey God. Now, we can see this in two different perspectives from this story of, of disobedience mixed with hope. Pharaoh, Pharaoh does this. He gives orders to murder baby boys. If you think about this, if Pharaoh did not try to kill baby boys, Moses would not have had his unique background of being, being prince of Egypt and prince of Israel, too. And if Pharaoh wasn't a baby murderer, Moses would not have had that world-class education and leadership training that would, that would prepare him to be this great leader for Israel. The second example of, of people not obeying God is uh, Mo Moses murders an Egyptian and tries to cover it up, disobedience. But if Moses hadn't messed up the way he did, he would have never fled to Midian and spent 40 years as a shepherd in the desert. He needed that 40 years in the desert. He was all set up to be prince of Egypt and to, to lead Israel. He had both that unique identity, but because he messed up here, he, he didn't obey God. He murdered an Egyptian and covered it up. He needed that time in the desert, 40 years, to humble himself and to seek God and to build the leadership character he would need to go back and lead Israel. 
There is hope for those even when you mess up. The psalmist writes in Psalm 57, he writes, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge. Until these calamities have passed by, I will cry out to God most high. And in this line, this, this sentence, to God who performs all things for me, he shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. In Romans chapter 8, 28, he writes, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things God works, even when you mess up. Let, let me just close with this, though. You can't mess up your life if you give your life to him. What does it mean to give your life to God? It, it means I give up being the center of the universe. I give up wanting everything in my life to go my way, the way I think my life should go. Until you give your life to Jesus, this is how you think. Until you give your life to Jesus, you, you're thinking like this. I have my agenda, and I have a way that I think my life should go. And you want things in your life to just to revolve around you as a center of the universe. But being a Christian says, being a Christian is you say to God, I give up my will for your will, God. God, thy will be done in my life. God, you take the steering wheel of my life. You're, you're the one that's going to drive my life. You see, God takes everything in your life, everything in your life, when you make a good decision, God takes when you make a mistake in your life. God is with you in your triumph and your tragedies, and he weaves all those things together for your good and his glory when you give your life to him. I wonder sometimes how Moses was feeling. At the end of chapter 2, he flees to Midian. He's a shepherd in the desert. He sits down by a well on a rock, and he's thinking, I had it all. I had it all. I had everything. But look at me now. Why didn't I obey? And maybe you're in the same boat. Maybe you're, you're thinking, I've tried to obey. And I've messed up a few times. But I'm here now in the desert of my life. So what's the use? You see, Moses only became a great leader and saved his people because he was rejected. He became a great deliverer because he was rejected. See, Moses is, the, is a type of the one to come. Jesus was only able to save us because he was rejected. Because he lost and he obeyed, we won. He triumphed through losing. He was resurrected after his death. And truth be told, let's be honest, obeying God right now, today in your life, obeying God often looks like death. Obeying God in your life right now often looks like this is the end. This is the end of the conversation once I start obeying God. This is the end of my career when I start obeying God. This is the end of that friendship. This is the end of that love life when I start to obey God. 
and it looks like you're in the desert, but you're not stuck there because you're in the middle of the story, God's story for your life when you start obeying God. When you say to God, you are the center of my life. I'm not the center of my life anymore. God will deliver you. And for some, he will deliver you so that you would be a deliverer. Let's pray together. Dear Father, thank you for your story, this birth story of Moses. God, thank you that, that through all of these birth stories that we read in the Bible, we see, we see hope. And even in the midst of, as we look at Moses' life and we think about uh, the extraordinary events of his life, the, his life being saved as a baby boy, his mom being creative in her civil disobedience and putting him in that cradle boat in the Nile, and then Pharaoh's daughter drawing him out, and all of that, Father, we see as we look back on this story, your hand in everything. And Father, may we have hope today in our lives that you have a hand in our lives. For many of us today, Father, we just want to say to you, we give you our life. You take the steering wheel of our life today. We've made mistakes. We've made some good decisions. We have triumphs and tragedies. But today, we give you our life. And through that, may you be glorified. And may you do good through us. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a unique opportunity today.